Hello and welcome back to the Cyclist Magazine podcast brought to you in association with Castelli. I am your host, Joe Robinson, and I am joined by James Spender. Good afternoon, Joseph. How are you? I'm good. And on today's show, we are joined by former professional track and road cyclist turned carbon fibre jewellery maker, Mr. Rob Hales. But before we get into that, let's have some things we like and some things we do not like. James, good to see you again. Hope you are well. Please tell me something that you are enjoying in the world of cycling. Uh, in the world of cycling, it's also been in a world of incredibly cold weather mm. for the last couple of weeks. And I've just been enjoying a hot drink on my bike. Oh, really? Yeah, you know, it's a classic thing we all walked around with in the 70s, apparently. It's a thermos, but it's a camelback thermos called a camelback forge. And it's the only thermos that I've kind of found that, you know, it doesn't just keep stuff warm. You can actually drink out of it. And it also seals. So it doesn't leak right. and it's designed to fit in your bottle cage. Oh, wow. It's great just for knocking about with uh, a coffee or a tea and then being able to help. Because you can't stop at a cafe anymore. No. Not at the moment, really. So being able to travel with a warm drink. So that's been fantastic. And quickly, what's your hot drink of choice on the bike? Uh, I'll take an Earl Grey tea. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll take a coffee. But I'll tend to drink a coffee more on a walk. And that's the other thing. Because it's not you can, it doubles up. You don't walk around with a water bottle drinking out of that, but you can walk around with your bike thermos and drink out of that. Perfect. And something you don't like? Well, it's kind of twofold. One is just shoddy builders. I don't understand why when I was doing the uh, redoing my bathroom, it's the builders that did the bathroom last time obviously went, oh, right, lads, uh, we got to clear up. Where should we put all the uh, crisp packets and just debris? Oh, just push it under the bath and then seal it up. So just like loads of stuff. I was like, where is this stuff from? Um, newspapers from like 1972. You need Matthew Allwright from BBC One to come investigate them cowboy builders. Yeah, or don't get done, get done. Mm. Uh, so yeah, that's kind of, that's been vaguely annoying. But in the bike world, I'm just seeing more bikes come our way for test with non-series parts. And that, so you'll get a Shimano Ultegra group set, for example. Uh, and you'll get the Shimano non-series disc levers that look similar but aren't quite the same. And they, they're they doing that for two reasons. One is to hit price points because we're seeing hikes in prices because of Brexit as that slowly starts to unfold. And the other is because of availability of parts, which is uh, mm. something we did in the recent issue of Cyclist Magazine, actually. So if you clock that, a kind of uh, exploration into what's going on with the supply chain and that kind of question, where's my bike? Because we've been hearing reports that a local bike shop is not expecting to get new stock of, say, uh, Shimano 105 group sets until early 2022. And that sounds ridiculous, yes. but it's true. And you're seeing it on bikes already. And yeah, that just kind of annoys me. I like matching things and I feel like it's somehow, it's almost disrespectful to the buyer. It's like, oh, we're going to sneak this cheaper part in just to keep our margins going. It's like, I don't know, but I'm not. I'm not in business. You have to keep your margins going. I salute anyone at the moment that is is struggling mm. to make a you know, earn a crust off bikes and bigger retailers, smaller retailers, whatever. So I don't know. Maybe I'll redact that one. But it's occurring on my radar. Non-series parts. How about yourself, matey? Uh, something I'm liking. So on cyclist.co.uk, nice little plug here for our online brand. We are running a kids competition where we're asking children under the age of 16 and over the age of four i think i'll have to double check that one in the season <laughs> to basically design their ultimate cycling jersey 
and uh, it's you know a bit of fun to have. It's half term at the moment for the kids, so loads of parents who are across the country are probably going mad having to homeschool a little bit of you know an hour or two that they can be spending sort of entering into this competition there's a chance to win a new bike as well and, and a bit of kit around the bike from some pe- from our sponsors at Freewheel, uh, Ridgeback it's a lovely little kids bike um but so far we've had quite a lot of entries and when I say James every single entry that has been brought in by a child is better than every jersey in the men's world tour <laughs> at the moment it's I'm not even joking from um, the there was a there's a little girl that entered a jersey that just said Team Rainbow Love on it. Nice. Um, there was one that said Shred It, and the kid had like sort of drawn loads of the rock hands around the jersey. Yeah. But the best one so far is the uh, uh, there's a flamingo with an ice cream on its head riding a bike, and underneath the jersey that this uh, this little kid's designed, it it's just got the explanation. It's like my jersey has a flamingo on its head with an ice cream on its head and it's riding a bike. No, no, like, and this is why. Just <laughs> that's my jersey. Take that's it or a, leave it, mate. That's brilliant. I mean, that I love that. I love the kid logic, which is like, well, yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. Isn't it? So that I, 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 opened that, up, mate. I opened up some of the entries on Monday morning and saw them and spent like an hour looking at them. Just it really warmed my heart and made me feel good because, you know, these some of the designs are really inspired and I'm, I look forward to seeing more, you know, the competition's open till the 24th. So if you've got a kid under 16, get them involved because they could win a nice prize. And it's a bit of fun for them to have in their sort of their time off. Absolutely. And I think if you're um, a pro team listening to this, steal this idea, like the marketing is huge. I'm going to send the entire, every single one of them, I'm sending in a massive email yeah. to all 18 world tour teams. Or 19 world teams at the end of this. Exactly. If you get kids to design your jersey and then race in it for a whole year, then you've converted a whole generation of children just to loving your team. And who wouldn't wear a jersey with a flamingo with an ice cream on his head? <laughs> yeah. Who's going to sponsor that, though? London um, Zoo. Walls ice cream? Yeah. There used, exactly. to be a, there used to be a couple of ice cream sponsors back in exactly. the day. So, yeah. Bring it's them back. Perfect. Um, and let me move on to something I don't like. Yeah. So, there's been a bit of hot water at the moment regarding the UCI and their recent banning of two position, riding positions that they've deemed dangerous, which is the super tuck descending position, which yep. you would have seen used by people like Chris Froome, which is the sitting on the top tube, and the, the puppy dog arms, which is the sort of, sort of resting the arms over the top of the bars. Tony Martin Not actually style. having any, yeah, not having a sort of a handle on your, your bars, basically. Um, and it's not so much the UCI banning these positions, you know, actually, maybe for once the UCI being quite proactive and making sure that something's banned before someone gets really hurt. Yeah. But it's kind of the fallout, you know, there was a lot of pro riders who criticised the decision, said, you know, you're you're not looking at the actual dangerous stuff. They're referencing, for instance, the crash at the Tour of Poland last year, where Fabio Jakobsen was, you know, really badly injured because of um, insufficiently safe barriers. That's something that's also been addressed by the UCI. Yeah. But there was a bit of like to and froing on social media between pros who are some were saying, you know, it's dangerous, it's not dangerous. But I and you know, I don't think it's a great look for there to be this like weird infighting between, you know, the sport about sort of whether this is dangerous or whether this is not. I think realistically we should just sort of accept what the UCI have done here and actually be quite 
sort of appraising of the fact that they've been proactive for a change. Yeah, say, yeah. Rather than waiting for, you know, waiting for someone to have a bad accident, having done the super tuck, then everyone turning around and going, oh, you should have banned that years ago. Well, they've, they've taken that action now, which is quite cool. Um, but I think they should counteract it with bringing in a new rule, which is that every Grand Tour should have a mandatory uphill time trial where UCI weight limits on bikes are completely thrown out of the water. So you can have like a mad hill climb set up and you don't have to wear your helmet as like a, a yin to the yang of making it more safety. You have one day where someone's riding on a bike that's had parts drilled out of it to save weight and it's got the hair, sort of the hair in the wind. That would be cool. And that's often been touted, isn't it, as a, a kind of rule change or like amendment would be that riders could throw their helmets off at the beginning of climbs. Mm. But as people have pointed out, just to be a real killjoy, falling sideways off a bike at low speed is actually potentially really dangerous because okay. you don't slide. You just you just like crack. But equally, who if in a in a hill climb, unless you've drilled out like significant sections of your down tube, then mm. nothing's going to break and you're not going to fall off because you're a professional. So I re- yeah, I'm up for that. And you could have a kind of um, experimental chapter of constructors' bikes mm. that get trotted out a bit like you get at Roubaix. You just get the mad hill climb bikes. That would exactly. be sick. Yeah, I'm I'm backing that. I'm gonna. All, I'm in all your, while the for. peloton are racing in jerseys with a flamingo with an ice cream on its head. No, that's what you win. <laughs> yeah, perfect. What you will know about today's guest is that he is a three-time Olympian and pioneer of Team GB's heralded track program. A winner of three Olympic medals, two world titles, and countless national titles on the track long before it was cool and a British national champion on the road too, who then retired for a spot in the commentary booth at BBC Radio 5 Live and Eurosport. What you may not know about Rob Howes is that he is a man with magical hands who has long been involved in the mysterious world of carbon fibre technology and who owns his own bespoke carbon engineering and jewellery business, Carbon Concepts. So Rob, thanks for coming on to the show today. Um, Thank you very much. The- I think the best way to start it is for you to just give a brief explainer as to what Carbon Concepts is, really. Totally big me up there, haven't you? And it sounds like uh-huh. I know what I'm going to be talking about here. <laughs> um, yeah, basically, Carbon, I, I started, originally started Recarb, which was uh, repairs. So carbon, carbon fibre bike repairs um, up to WRC, rear wings and front splitters and stuff like anything I could get in the workshop. But it came through, really, um, the amount of kit that we destroyed or broken and basically thrown away over the years riding for the teams. And it's heartbreaking now when I think back to how easy it can be to keep stuff on the road if you know what you're doing. So that was that was part of the reason. And to, to slot in with, with the commentary, as you say, that I was doing um, during the season... To, to dovetail in with that so it gave me some work to do at home and it's then gone on to the, the carbon concepts which is basically anything really involving kind of the carbon atom which is in every, in anything and everything pretty much so it's not overly specific now but it's it's gone to jewelry that I'm doing alongside the carbon repairs so rings and bracelets and the odd dog tag things like that mainly from a cycling background so titanium carbon fiber um there's a little bit of aluminium in there stainless steel damascus steel um 
the cycling background so the designs have come from that and it's gradually evolving because obviously my 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 following is on from a cycling side and that's where the designs have started and they're gradually getting kind of broader and broader as my following on on it it's all on instagram but as as that following broadens so my designs are starting so i'm going away from just doing the world's bands on a ring or the track track lines yeah i was gonna i was gonna say because it's best the the best place to really understand what you do because you've got a website for carbon concepts carbonconcepts.co.uk but your your instagram is basically a so, uh, sometimes it's a complete day of what you're doing and it's basically many videos of you in your workshop banging out uh, 90s dance tracks and then working on a lathe with carbon fiber it's well it, it's one of the reasons again why i why i work kind of on my own in a workshop is because i wouldn't be allowed in any other workplace because i have to have music and uh, it has to be loud and yeah it's it, it's probably health and safety reasons and hr wouldn't be too happy if i was in in a, a workplace as such it's kind of it's my happy place where i go to um and yeah it's it started with playing basically always tinkering with my bikes i was using carbon fiber in ways that um to, to form things and make things try and make my bike faster you know usual sort of tinkering and it's gone on and evolved over the last kind of 20 years. I mean, way back in 2000 in the Olympics in Sydney, I, I formed my own handlebars or at least the, the extensions on my tri bars because um, I wasn't happy with the ones that we were supplied with. And then, and then through that, that kind of was a segue into working for the Secret Squirrel team alongside Chris Boardman and Demetrius Kitsanis, who kind of designed the original UKSI bikes. And we were doing the wind tunnel testing and on the clothing and, and the bikes. And I mean, they've gone on to ridiculous um, bits of kit now, obviously, with Hope getting involved and that mm. and that new stuff. Yeah, now you're making um, super Campagnolo Super Record wine bottle holders which I must say is probably one of the best things I've ever seen. Oh, it was incredible. That, um, and in fact, today I received a package from Australia from a lad who has sent me a set of cranks, uh, super record cranks that um, were damaged. And my payment to him is to make him a ring out of, <laughs> out of one of the, um, basically make the ring out of the, where the pedal axle goes in. Mm. Um, and it's a beautiful marbled carbon um, that it comes out as. So that's my payment, and out of that I get to make um, various other things with that. But yeah, the bottle uh, the bottle holder, I was quite happy, quite pleased with that one. So presumably that's something, someone sends you that, you don't just go out to um, your local bike shop and buy, uh, they're probably about 1,400 quid, aren't they, a super record chain set? And start cutting it up. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't know what they. I mean, on eBay, I've been looking, but I know certainly in terms of the 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 cranks that I had, I've made more money out of the bits that I produced from it than trying to sell the thing on uh, online. Put it that way, as a second hand crank. But yeah, brand new ones. I don't know. I dread to think. But it, it it's one of the visions that I've got for Carbon Concepts down down the line in the future is to do. Um, to go into kind of furniture and stuff like that, like lamps, table lamps, that that sort of thing. So, so yeah, the bottle, the bottle holder was um, was one of those things that was, uh, you know, it's getting on the way to doing something completely different from the jewelry as well. Yeah, nice. So you need to, um, if you haven't been, pay a visit to uh, to Campagnolo in Milan because they've got a whole 
a whole uh, hat stand made out of crank sets and bits of campy group set. It's the most, it must, it must be the most replaceable hat stand in the world. You know, you can get every single part to replace it, but it must have cost them a fortune in, in just scrap alone. It's insane. The thing, yeah, the the thing I like about Campag is um, is the fact that they are they're quite a big industry, but it's a cottage industry still. I mean, I don't know if they've still got the guy who hand stamps. Is it the? I, I think it was. Um, what part was it? It might have been the front mech holder or something. But he he just puts it in a machine and pulls a lever and stamps the. The logo on the the Campag shield on, and you know you can imagine Shimano doing something like that. It, it just wouldn't happen. So I, I I do like that kind of. It's you know it's handmade. It's not handmade in the Peak District, but it's in yeah in Italy somewhere. Absolutely. And I think I think that guy it does uh, does still exist. Um, and also the um the, the one the sole person that makes the lenticular Ghibli wheels. And he's the only bloke in the factory that, so they say, that's kind of ever done it. Very, yeah. And he's almost a bit like you. And, and you describe your workshop. One man, all his tools, smashing out metal music with a ponytail. Yeah. So, those Ghiblis, they are a thing of beauty. And I missed out on one, actually, out of the... Uh, they were getting rid of one that I wanted for my, for my coffee shop bike. But uh, I have to put up with a pair of uh, Mavic 5 spokes <laughs> that I managed to convert. One was Jamie Staff's that he dinged in the Athens Olympics in the Kieran, and I managed to convert that to a rear, which apparently was one of eight or nine in the world. And again, I had a guy engineer me the hub out of his shed just up the road from me in Whaley Bridge, uh, an old boy who is no longer with us, unfortunately, but he, he basically made the hub so that I could convert this front front Mavic five spoke into a rear that I then raced on at a World Cup as well. But that's now in my coffee shop bike. And the front one they gave me and they they took out a section of the rim between two of the spokes because they knew that I would reuse it. But they gave me the, the section of rim as well. So I just bonded them back in. So uh, I now have the use of, so my coffee shop bike's got about two and a half grand's worth of wheels in it. That, so I can't really leave it outside, <laughs> outside anywhere without, uh, without security. Wow. So what was, so you mentioned earlier when you're breaking stuff back in the day and that kind of started you thinking this, if this can't end up in the bin, this needs to be repaired. What kind of stuff were you guys breaking and what was the first thing that you either repaired or that you custom made for yourself? And what was the reaction when your fellow riders saw that? Uh, some of the first things I, I repaired or, or made for myself was uh, an aero fairing, because I, I was a tall rider and I had a big stack on my, on my headset underneath the stem. And so I basically bonded a load of carbon fibre um, stackers, but I used an old specialised tri-spoke. Basically, I ground that to shape to fit and bonded it all together. So I had this aerodynamic fairing up front. And then I took the cranks, um, a set of cranks, single chain ring, and I wrapped the whole thing like uh, I think Astana were using something very similar. Um, not long after me, I'm not saying that they saw what I was doing, but um, it was just like this one piece um, that I used just with with uh, carbon sheeting and managed to wrap it and form it. And I've gone on to using uh, kind of fabric and resins now. Back, back then it was just preformed carbon that I was cutting and using Araldite. And then, I mean, that was, again, that was back kind of 20 years ago. So I've moved on a little bit since then. 
Um, and with regards to bikes that we were wrecking and destroying, I mean, anything, look frames, uh, I mean, look frames, the rear hangers, don't look at a rear hanger on a look frame because it will fall off. <laughs> um, but, but also, if you, uh, if you come off on the top tube, you know, get a lot of bikes now, um, Pinarello particularly, very fragile up on the top tube. If you do what Chris Froome does, you will break it. Um, if you sit on it outside a coffee shop, you will break it. Um, and that happened on a, a look frame from one of the Tour Series crits, actually. I came off the front of my saddle, fractured it. And when I think back, I could have repaired that so easily. But I can remember the next day it, it being stripped down and being thrown across a car park and bouncing, you know, this, this look 595 or whatever it was that we were racing on. And when I think back now, it just breaks my heart. Criminal. Wow, yeah. So I'm doing I'm doing a service to people. I'm a, I'm a, I've been a frontline key worker all summer, and um, long may it continue. Well, people, I mean, it's a, we we joke about, but there's often questions asked about how bad carbon fibre can be for the environment, and how, it, as you said, especially with the very top pro teams, if they have a slight fracture in a carbon wheel or a frame, it's just on the on the rubbish dump. Yes. Whereas and and you know for the average joe at home they'd probably go to the nth degree to try and get repaired or try and do as much as they can with that bike to to salvage it yeah i mean cycling's an expensive hobby and so the the cost of a repair is generally anything between 10 and 15% of of the of a replacement um and the repair is often as good if not better than than the the original part um, I certainly wouldn't be taking on a repair that I didn't think was was viable. I'm certainly not in it for to make a few quid. Um, I'm happy to. I'd be happy to send myself or my kids out on on the bike. Um, but yeah, the, the, there's a lot of teams that if they break it, they won't race on it again. I mean, I used to repair all the the, the GB squad, all the track Mavic five spokes and the disc wheels for them. And then ironically, they put a little yellow T on them to say, well, they were for training only. We won't race on them. But the thing with, with the training is actually they go beyond the forces that racing gives you. So it was a, it was a little bit nonsensical in that way. But that's, you know, that's how they work. We, we don't want a repaired item. They're happy to go 90K an hour behind the motorbike, but, but not at 75 racing, that sort of thing, which is a bit weird. But uh, not, not for me to tell. And James picked up on it a little bit but what was what do um did your fellow pros think of you doing all this sort of repair and this work because i've spoken to a lot of pros in my life who wouldn't know that wouldn't even be able to change i'm pretty sure i've met pros who wouldn't be able to know how to change an inner tube because they they they, because they've spent their entire life being basically parented and for them they just get handed a bike at the beginning of the year they ride it until it almost breaks and then give it back at the end of the year and get given a new one in january and they don't have that respect, or not respect, but the knowledge that someone like yourself has. There's a few, Nicky Turkstra, for instance, is one who is very, very efficient and in sort of engineering and the, and the mechanical side of cycling. So what was people sort of thinking about you when you'd go away with a set of look wheels and then come back the next day and they're all fine? Yeah, um, they were, I mean, a lot of them loved what I was doing, but they, it was one of those things they couldn't. They couldn't get their head around how it how it worked, and like like you say, you touched on there. A lot of the pros are very me- mechanically unsympathetic, and the way that they change gear on bikes, 
um, you can just see that they they haven't got a clue what they're doing. They just grab a handful of rear neck and hope that it's going to do something or do you know send the chain off. Bradley Wiggins, how many times have we seen him come off and stand in the middle of the road while everyone else is putting their bike back together and getting going? And Brad's there going he's with his chain hanging down going, well, what do I do? And that's a monster that was created a long time ago because he never did it himself. You know, there was always someone around there. Oh, it's Brad. We'll, we'll do that for him. And, and it came, by, came back to bite him now and again. And the, but, they, you, know, he, you know, I'm not trying to single him out because there's a lot like that that haven't got a bloody clue on what, on what they're doing and how a bike actually, actually works. There's a lot who do. But, uh, but an awful lot, you presume who would, because they've grown up with bikes, but, but no. So did this, did this make you popular with your mechanics, or very unpopular, your knowledge? A little bit on edge, I think, at times. I mean, it, it, they, they would listen. I, I remember turning up to, uh, to a race. I was, Terry Dolan was looking after me. I was, uh, I was an independent pro at the time, and Terry Dolan, I had Campag kit, and I went to ride for GB to a race, and... They were all on Shimano, and I just turned up with my race wheels. And uh, Ernie Fairgreave, who, I mean, he's been a mechanic for since before I was riding. Um, and he's still you know, from the old Leicester days at the outdoor Leicester track and stuff. And he said, oh, it's all right. Fortunately, I've got um, the adapters for Shimano for your Rolf wheels, so I can, I can, put, uh, I can put some Kangpad cassettes on. And I said, it works fine, it meshes fine. And he said, no, it doesn't. And I said, Ernie, all I have is Shimano wheels. My own, I've got a set of Campag wheels, but the rest, they're all Shimano from over the years. I've been using them all year. By the time you get down to the 10th sprocket, it's, it's a, the difference is, is nothing, it works. And he tried it. And okay, fair enough. Um, and then, and then the year we went, we had two thousand and eight. Um, we had uh, SRAM when the SRAM kit came out, and I wanted it early. I said to them, "Look, can I have this stuff early because it, it works really well. It's quite intuitive, but it's going to take a little bit of getting used to because of the double tap system compared to uh, obviously, you know." Campag with the thumb shifter, but uh, but with the Shimano that we've been using for years, and um, I remember being on the turbo train and looking down on the shifting and thinking, this could be so much better. I really liked it. I really liked the Shimano as long as you used the Durace front chainring and a front mech, because the the SRAM stuff at the time was made of tin foil and didn't last two minutes. Um, and I basically made a a shifter like a pistol shift. And I've got one still. My wife's bike has still got one of them, and um, and I took it in again to Ernie Fairgrave, and I said, "Oh, look, I've made this." Anyway, he he stood back, and I showed him how it worked. Basically, you just pulled it like a rather than having to shift with your whole hand, you just held it against the little little hook that was on the bar that I'd grafted onto the bar, and you just used it like a pistol. And then in a sprint, you could engage the, the gear. It was like a double, uh, a double clutch system. You could engage the gear. So if you were in, say, the, the 13, and you thought, well, I might want the 12 in the sprint, you just click, you do the single click. And then if you wanted that extra gear, you just let go of it and it would shift. 
and uh, so stuff like that. And I actually had words with uh, through Mark Cavendish actually with with SRAM um, about the design. And I said, look, I really love your stuff, but it could be so much better. That was one of my prouder moments. And I, I still use the system. Like I say, my wife still got the set, and I I set the bike up the other week actually, and it still works really really well really well and I can remember a foreign guy looking at me one day in a race saying what's that little thing on the handlebar for the for the shifter to to sit behind so that's that's that was going to be my next question is as far as I gather for a long long time bikes are scrutinized by commissaires and there's been this rule where you basically can't rock up you can't make fairings for bikes which you said you did <laughs> with Aldite and some other this, this is when it was a free-for-all yeah oh this okay yeah because i was going to say because then the other thing is this whole idea of well it has to be commercially available within the first 12 months of it being of it debuting so i'm not sure if uci sanctions well they do sanction the hour record so how wigo got away with his 3d printed bars i don't know because i've never seen them for sale it's like the uk si bikes yeah you can buy one yeah i mean if you get a if you can find it on the website and b if you've you've got enough money then you can you can have one but yeah fortunately all this was was pre the uci losing even more of their marbles um so i was able to get away with stuff like that so do you kind of lament that missed up well do you see it as a missed opportunity that the uci did that Laguna Charter just put the kibosh on crazy frame shapes, you know, of the ilk of Lotus and Mike Burrow's design and the Espada and those sorts of things from Pinarello? Or do you kind of think that actually, on balance, that's the way to go because it should be about the rider, not about the bike? I th I, I definitely think there should be rules and regulations. I th yeah, I think it's a lot to do with Graham O'Brien and the, the it was the way he went about his, his business. Um upsetting the uh, especially the Italians I think upsetting the, the big players and doing his own thing literally like I, I was doing in, in his shed um, it's I think it's a shame what is a shame that you can't use a prototype um, allegedly out there it has to, like you say it has to be available for mass consumption before before it can go out on the bike um, so I think the issue is now a lot of manufacturers, apparently the manufacturers have been using kind of triathletes and stuff like that as as their test bed for equipment, which um, when you're then trying to transfer that from, from riding how triathletes do to to one day classics and, and the, the major tours and, and the, the world scene on uh, with the pros, it's, it's, it's night and day. So in that respect, it, I think it slowed slowed a lot of things down. Have you got any involvement with any sort of uh, bike development? Because you used to, you did stuff with um, Beacon, didn't you, as well, which was UK brand. You worked with, um, as you said, the Sequel Squirrel Club, so all the, the track bikes and all the stuff that Board, Boardman and yourself developed for the Team GB. Is there any, have you still got any involvement with any bike brands in terms of aerodynamic development or um not at not at the moment there is there is talk with uh with quite a major brand that's going under a, a under new ownership um it's gone a little bit quiet over the winter but um we'll sort of see what happens with that but so hopefully there, there's a possibility of working working with with quite a big brand but um to be honest I'm, i've been so busy trying to do my own stuff at the moment that it's it's very difficult to get to get involved with uh, with those people but um you know and the, and the manufacturers as well they 
they can be a little bit funny and they, they like to keep it all in-house. I mean, Specialized, for instance, obviously one of the big, biggest brands out there, they came out with that new bike a few years ago, this sprint bike um, with the wacky handlebars and... The Vengevaya. Yeah, something like that, that, um, that Cav, and uh, it was designed for as a sprint bike, so Cav and Sagan had it. And they rocked up with it, and it was the first cab I'd seen. But their marketing was basically this this thing has been designed alongside the sprinters to be what they need. He'd never seen it before in his life. And then they just produced this bike. And that and that's what a lot of brands do, unfortunately. Um, but I, I was involved with a with a with a couple of pros just helping them kind of positional, um, a little bit of coaching and, and positional work um that they were doing for time trialing. Um on, on the Grand Tour scene, uh, Ivan Basso was over in Italy a couple of times doing some testing with him. Um, but other than that, no, it's just, uh, I've got enough on my plate at the moment. Because that's one of the great tragedies, I think, of modern racing is that if you go back to 20, 30 years, the best riders were riding bikes that had been basically custom made for that rider. You know, people like Merckx, uh, Moser, Indran, they were riding bikes that, you know, uh, Fausto Pinarello had gone out and designed specifically for him. Hugo De Rosa with Eddie Merckx, and even back in you know the early days of your career, Rob, there were probably guys on bikes that had been designed specifically for that rider. Whereas now, if you look at Peter Sagan and the Garant Thomases, they're just on an F12 that you can buy or a, a tarmac that you can buy off the shelf. They'll have the odd thing like a, a stem length that you can't can't technically get, but it's not to the same extent. Which kind of yeah, they're they're, they're off the peg. I mean. With the kind of massive respect to Chris Boardman, because again, 2000 and 2008, um, we were on the original Boardmans. So I, I won I won the National Road Race 2008 on basically what was probably an $80 frame, triple butted aluminium with carbon forks and a carbon rear end bonded on. And then by the, by the Olympics, Nicole Cooker was on the first of the four monocoque carbons. And then we went to the second year uh, for 2009, we were on the, the carbon monocoque, uh, myself and Ed Clancy and those guys when we had the team, the domestic team. And fair play to him, his, his extra large didn't fit me. So they allowed me within the scope of their design to actually have my own, my own bike. And I think they made three of them. Um, and so I had a 60 centimeter top tube I had a horizontal top tube but dropped like the old Van Hoy donk where you had the extended head tube on it. And I think that, I mean, that was probably one of the most expensive bikes out in in the world at, at the time because there were, there were literally three of them. They made, they made the moulds for them. I don't know how many tens of thousands that each of those frames would have come out at because um, they, they never actually made it onto their kind of, part of the the range it was so that 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 was something that was really exciting for me you know having the conversation saying right we're going to click the button on this are you sure these are the dimensions that you want it's like yeah yeah be fine it'll be fine right click the button because once the mold was made there was no going back you don't want to be putting your hand up and saying um doesn't quite can we get a couple of mil on that just up a little bit there sorry yeah <laughs> yeah but, but yeah i mean the, the, the the talk of the you know companies at CFAT was one of the the brands that that made for a lot of a lot of um, pro riders back in the day and and they were painted up with uh, with whatever the team was uh, was branded as 
Um, so that, that sort of thing has gone. And also, you can't really do it now because you know if you're supposed to be on the Pinarello F12, you know whether it's an F a Pinarello or not just because of the shape and the design of, of the tubes. You know, before it was just a, a colour, you know, a different colour, a bit of chrome maybe somewhere and the odd lug. But uh, but other than that, it was, it was literally the name on the frame. So it could have been anything, whereas now they, they struggle to get away with that. Yeah, I mean, recently there was... Um... I think it was Warren Bargill was having being not forced, but he was when he was at Arcade Championship, they were riding BH bikes. Yeah, and he he was just riding his old. Bet they were really good. <laughs> and he yeah he was just on a he was on whatever he was in a, somewhere which was maybe a Cervelo R five and they just had like a really shoddy BH paint job on it and it was just yeah <laughs> so yeah. obvious that he was clearly not on their bike. But yeah, and that and that I mean that's one of the things as well where a, a lot of people will discuss about what pros use and well if it's good enough for the pros then it's good enough for me and it's like listen it's not the pros choice to ride 99 times out of 100 it's not a pros choice what they get to ride with it's it's money talks unfortunately and that's that's how it is if if a if a team is supplied x you pretty much have to ride x that's that's the uh, that is one of the issues so and and it does come into play now and again with uh, with riders um and their and their contracts i'm sure yeah it's been a while though since we've seen a good bike throw i think the last one was um uh marcel kittel tossing his tossing his giant i can't remember where it was but he tossed his propel his giant propel across the oh, road oh after after he had a, he had a mechanical yeah Launched it, yeah. And then he had his. Uh... I remember he had a puncture on the Champs Elysees, and then I think he had a second puncture somewhere. Like that. that that was certainly one. But going back to Brad, as mechanically unsympathetic, he's had one of the best and the freakiest bike throws. Do you remember where he came off on that climb and he just launched in, the bike in Italy? Yeah, he yeah, just rolled off, self right and rolled. I mean, it, yeah. you'd never do that ever again. <laughs> but it was one of those. It was fair play. Yeah, no, that was amazing. That's one of my favourites. And then. Um... Bjarne Reese in 96 or 97 and apparently last minute he'd asked his mechanics to take off a chain ring for the time trial so he only had a single up front and they also removed the rim the front mech so so but yeah so basically there's nothing really holding it on in case if there's any jump and he had one of these early Y-frame um, Pinarello Paragina bikes I think so anyway incredibly expensive bike high profile rider he's going to be followed by the camera all the way and then he ships his chain and he just loses his, his shit and he gets this thing and he goes and it just glides because obviously it's so deep the tubes that on its side it's like a frisbee and so it just goes over the arm cone off off the motorway and you think someone somewhere is like 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 in formula one when they dash their steering wheels on the on the in the gravel and, and the commentator's like yeah that's twenty five thousand euros <laughs> well i can't remember what year it was with miller in in the tour might have been 2001 or 2002 i think he won the year he won the prologue the year the year before and it was all you know everything's going into this and i can remember being sat in in our apartment in Biritz and watching him come down the ramp he hit the bottom, the bike jumped, and the, the chain jumped off. And I'm looking and I've gone, oh my God, they've, you know, for aerodynamic reasons, like you say, single chain ring, took the front mech off. And I phoned him that night and I said, Dave, did you take that front mech off? He went, yeah, yeah, Nico, Nico, the mechanic, did it. I said, mate, and this was one of the biggest budget teams at, back in the day. And I said, mate, speak to 
any tester in the UK and they will tell you if you take go down to a single front mech, front ring keep your mech on you rode for Kofidis in the early 2000s for a couple of seasons Rob three yes yeah and and they and and it's you know it's not it's no secret you speak to anyone who rides or has ridden for a French team they normally live in 20 years about in the past a, they were a highly funded club yeah, exactly. And you're, you're known for being someone, as you've already mentioned, who, you know, made no bones about it. You'd develop your own bikes. You wanted to be as aero as possible. If you listen to you commentate now, the amount of times you go apoplectic at people riding with jerseys open, how was that kind of, that must have been a bit chalk and cheese when you're turning up going, I want uh, these carbon tri-bars. And they're like, well, we've got this uh, really lovely steel Columbus frame from the late 70s. <laughs> to be honest, back then I, I didn't, I wasn't that aware of where I was going, where I was going to be, and, and where the whole industry was going to go. To be fair, I hadn't really got on the on the wave of it yet at, at that point. But there were there were things like the whole truck was full of Campag borers, and I said, "Can I have can I have a set of borers today?" Because we were on thirty two spoke hand built wheels with these big green tubs, Vittoria tubs. And you're looking around and CSC and all these guys are on zip, you know, 400s or whatever they were, 404s. And we're going, well, you beat them before you start. And I said, well, why, why can't, I, can't I have these boards? Oh, no, 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 there's, there's pavé today, there's some cobbles. It's like, yeah, there's, there's a 60 metre stretch with, with 70k to go. But then their argument would be, well, are you going to win? I'm like, well... Not on these, I'm not, definitely. And then I remember one day they they put a rear chamal in for me, an aluminium chamal, which, I mean, weighed a tonne. And I just went, don't worry, forget it, forget it. So that, that was, you know, that was frustrating. I remember Miller phoning the, um, the team, Francois Migrain, and saying, and thanking him for the fact that uh, he had the same time trial bike as um, I think it mm. might have been the MBK, AG2R Le Mondial were on as well. And he says, yeah, I'd, li I'd like to thank you um, for for having the same bike as their sprinter, basically. And it was like, what what are you doing to us? You you, you just, but yeah, they, they were an absolute joke of a team. And, and a lot of the French teams were like that. My, my first meeting, like pre-race meeting of what we were actually going to do was Paris-Roubaix that year and we'd already had like however many weeks of racing up to that point. Tour Med was my first race. Ivan Basso actually won the first stage. I think he was a Neo Pro. And um, I didn't speak French at the time. It was so, so limited. And I, I remember saying to Miller, right, what, what was that meeting about? He, he said, just see you at the finish, lads. I said, well, what do I do? And he looked at me and he just went, mm. survive. And it was literally, it was like, oh my God, those first few weeks. But yeah, they, they were a joke. And that was the thing, coming from the British team as it was from the 2000 Olympics in Sydney, it was so early in, in, in where it was going to be. But they were so much more organised than this team. Cofidis, one of the high, it was about a £4 million budget at the time, which was huge. It was astronomical. One of the biggest teams had some of the biggest riders in the world there um, over the years. And I, and I, it was a bit of a shock. It was like, mm. for real, this is a, unbelievable. Well you, well, you joke, but 
I remember, do you remember about, I think, three or four seasons ago, um, riders from Groupama FDJ started winning time trials. I think Thibaut Pino won a time trial at, like, Torino Adriatico. And everyone was like, hang on, we, we didn't know he could time trial. And they were like, oh, yeah, over the winter, they decided it was probably about time they got in the wind tunnel. And, they, and they'd done that. And then suddenly FDJ was sort of podium at team time trials and their GC guys weren't, you know, hemorrhaging two minutes each time they had a test. It was, I think it was Pino's brother or his brother-in-law who got involved with the coaching. And uh, and I, again, in commentary, I've, I've said it, I said, look at them. Because a lot of people behind this have got, oh, what are they doing? Yeah, they're obviously up to something as a team. And I'm like, yeah, they are up to something. Look at them. They look like a proper team now. They've got the kit. They've got the skin suits. They they ride and they did. They made these massive gains. And a lot of people think that there's, oh, there's a secret to all this. What what's the secret? What's what's Team GB's secret? What's Team Sky's secret? What are they doing? And it's like they're just doing as much as they can, right? And people think this marginal gains. Oh, it's been made up as a smokescreen for various other things. It's not. It's it's really quite simple. And and a lot of people on the outside think that all the pro teams are on a level playing field in terms of their their outlook, but the better teams are doing other things. And it's like, no, there's a lot of teams out there who haven't got a bloody clue about what they're doing. They just haven't got a clue and they don't get the simple things right. And a lot of it comes down to culture, unfortunately. They've, they've, they've got decent budgets. But the people there, it's not how much money you've got, it's how it's applic- the application of those funds. And that's the thing that, that GB have got right. And I mean, we copied the Australian Institute of Sport from where they were years ago and copied that model and just, you know, kind of progressed it. So, so yeah, it's, um, yeah, the FDJ thing was amazing. When you saw them, it's like, wow, they really look, they look proper now. And then you've got, uh, Roman Bardet, who's saying, "Oh no, no, no! I do, I do not ride my time trial bike other than a time trial because I do not like it." It's like tough shit. You've got to ride a time trial bike really well if you want to ride. If you want to win the mm. tour, you've just got to suck it and and suck it up and get on with it. But no, 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 no! I do not like this. Like, well, okay, then then don't moan when you lose your position on the podium in a time trial in the final time trial in the tour. So on that on that note, then. Did Primoz Roglic throw away the Tour de France with his ill-fitting helmet? No, I th- I think he he lost the Tour, A, because there was a better rider than him. He he looked in a bad way, didn't he? Those fo- that, that poor poor Roglic, that photo of him with that helmet, that's that was um that was a marginal loss, that, but it, it wasn't the it wasn't the tour loss. No, he, he was just having a really, really bad day. It wasn't. It wasn't the Finion ponytail. It wasn't. No, no. That's well. That's the thing. Yeah, if you extrapolate that ponytail through the, uh, but but this is the thing. I mean, two thousand eight. I wore a skin suit, and a lot of the guys early on in the season were saying to me, "Oh, you're wearing a skin. It's not a time trial." I said, "We'll have to wait and see, won't we, lads?" And I went through more sets of brake blocks that year than I ever had because I was carrying more speed. The pros. I mean, we went to France, and they were just. I was a laughing stock. Till I till I won a stage, but it, it's like, what are you doing? You're wearing a skin suit, and it's like, well, yeah. Why are you wearing a skin suit? I said, because it's easier. Well, people even laugh at people were laughing at Adam Hansen as recently as like three, four years ago because he would be wearing skin suit at a Grand Tour stage. You'd get you'd get guys looking around going, what 
you know, why have you got that and that? He would wear the camel back with his gels in it. And now you get, and as you said now, I don't think, if you looked at a standard mountain stage or like a very fast stage of a Grand Tour, 90% of that peloton are in their skin suits and like gunning. Well, we had um, we had a, a very high profile rider in the wind tunnel the other year um, going into the Rio, hold on a minute, let me think, was it London? No, it might, it must, sorry, it was London Games. And we had them in their World Tour kit and it was their, what they considered their, their top flight um, jersey and shorts. This is the aero stuff, not for when you're in the mountains where you do need a little bit more of uh, kind of airflow and stuff like that. But um, so it was it was a combined shorts and jersey, the helmet and then their bike. And we set them up and we did we did some runs with them and we then transferred it to the UKSI bike, which was converted to a road bike. We put them in the skin suit, the overshoes and the gloves. And then we had an aero helmet that didn't fit them. It was on top. It was perched on top. It looked like Harold Lloyd with this kind of bowler hat on top of them. And we did we did these tests, and we had fifteen percent gains. And this is over one of the highest paid world tour riders in a big budget team. And this is what we were doing, basically in a shed in Southampton. And fifteen percent on on the gains worked out at something it i can't remember exactly what it was i remember D, demetrius was doing backflips and just going oh my god that's like five bike lengths over 250 meters at whatever speeds and stuff and it was just it was just mind-blowing it was like there is so much more out there there are so many more gains to be had and and this okay this is going back kind of eight nine years now and and each year you do more progression and and the the gains are smaller but they're but they're still there you know and now they're going to graphene chain lube and stuff like that or so so certain people say but i have asked them where they get their graphene because i know where it comes from the only place you get it from and they couldn't give me the answer so they're probably just getting it out of a leaded pencil or something <laughs> isn't that that's where they got it from in the first place though, wasn't it they wrapped a bit of sellotape around some lead stuck yeah. under a microscope at Manchester Uni, yeah. But, um, so, but if that's if that's a world tour pro with all the money and all the will in the world and all the coaching, and you're getting fifteen percent just by switching up their kit, when you're cruising around, looking and you know seeing other riders, amateur riders, where are the easy wins for us amateur riders in terms? Of, you know, what do you see people doing wrong, and where can a few quid be spent to make people faster for free? It's um. The, it's the body position on the bike is the biggest part because it doesn't matter how much you spend on the bike, on the wheels, that is a smaller part. Something like 80% of the overall picture is 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 us, unfortunately. Um, and But the good thing about that is there are, there are ways of doing that as long as morphologically you can get into a position. So, for instance, back in, back in 2008, I went down to narrow bars because it was always about... Well, the bars have to be shoulder width, otherwise you can't breathe. I say, okay, so where do you put your tri-bars then? Because you need to breathe pretty heavily in a time trial, but you're happy to have your tri-bars. That's a load of row. It's not about breathing and it won't affect your breathing. It's all about your frontal area. So narrower bars, 
and then the clothing that you wear. I mean, a lot of the, the funky clothing um, that that uh, people wear, it's wool these days, you know, it's proper gone back, hasn't it, with your white stripe on one arm and all that. Looks great, but it ain't aero. So the clothing, I mean, I had a basic imp sport skin suit back then, but because I was the only rider doing it, I had a massive gain over everyone. But now with the materials, your orientation of the panels, these funky panels on, on skin suits, um, then that's that's a big gain. And there are companies out there who are, who are doing that. I mean, they're, they're, they're charging the earth for, for some of the kit, but just a simple fitted, nice fitted skin suit, not too tight because if it's really tight, and that was the other thing we thought, right, we've got to go really tight with this skin suit. Trouble is it opens up the material and then it becomes porous. And so that's not what you want. It's got to be fitted, but not too tight and stretched. And then a helmet. I mean, I've still got a helmet that I, I it was an old Giro and I stripped the, the shell off, made it smaller because these things are massive. That air brake on the back when you put your head down, just grind that off. And I was filling in the fronts of it just, just to, to fill it in. So the, these helmets that with all the, the air vents, I mean, that specialised thing they did just slows you down. It's like an air brake. And going downhill, you can feel it pulling on your head. And um, so you, your clothing, your helmet and your position and your shoulder position and Time trialing is obviously the big thing where people want to go quicker and, and we've seen kind of the prey mantis position has come back in, in vogue and for very good reasons, I think. You know, it, it used to be go really low and I, I was one of those riders who, oh, we've got to get low, we've got to get really, really low. But the trouble is with that, it tends to open your shoulders out and your head pops up. So you, you basically you funnel all the, the wind in. Unless you've got like the someone like Bradley Wiggins, who's obviously a one in a million, kind of rider who could keep that sort of position for like when he did the hour record he's a, a bit of a freak of nature when it comes to being able to ride a time trial but then you look at Filippo Ganna who I, I personally think we're going to be talking about one of the greatest time trialers of all time if he continues with what he's been doing he's in you know some of the I mean you must look at some of these IP times these individual pursuit times and and they, they're what you were doing in 2000 in the in the TP and but he's, as you said, he's come back with that quite high front end praying mantis. I mean, he looks like a piece of art on a bike, I think, personally. he's Yeah, I mean, my, my bike in the back end of my career, when it was lent against the, the, the war, it looked wrong. It's like, there's no way that can be fast. But when, when I got on it, it made sense. And that's the thing, when you start looking at where where the hand position and the and your your elbow position is your elbow pad position compared to the saddle it's right up there but what you're trying to do what that will do if you get it right is it means you roll your shoulders in and you tuck your head in because what you're trying to do is hide from the wind all the time and not be out and open to it like a parachute so the position on the bike is the cheapest and the easiest and the, and the biggest factor you can have and then from there you go back and so that it's basically you're looking for the big gains first and then and then you start to look for the small gains i mean in back in my early days i was looking at these small gains just because it interested me you know making this little head this little aero stack but then when i look back to the position that i had on the bike it, it was it could have been so much better when i look at 2000 olympics i was fourth to bradley mcgee in in the individual pursuit final 
And I look at that and the position I had and I just, I cry sometimes. So those little things like, you know, aero gloves and aero socks, to you, do they stack up at all? Is there any veracity to them? Yes, def definitely, but not on their own. And, th and this is the thing, if you look at, you look at the whole package and and it, it's been used so so often this aggregation of mar marginal gains and that's what it is it's looking at every aspect and it's not just on the bike it's to your nutrition and to your training as well and and you, your warm-up preparation and stuff like that but yeah if, if you just buy a set of aero gloves and some overshoes are you going to see are you going to feel again no, it's unlikely. But if you put that package with a bike, with the forks, with the wheels, and more importantly, your position and the clothing, the clothing is where, where to spend the money. Um, and, and the helmet that fits you for the speed that you're going, then then that overall package, that's where you really start to, to see the differences come in and, the, and those gains will really start to be made. And it's a common misconception amongst amateurs that, being in the drops is the fastest place to have your hands and actually the faster place for most people is on top of the just kind of like balled up on top of the hoods right well we've seen these these bars now that are being designed haven't we and, and the right there's that belgian rider who rides in kind of the, the 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 lower level protein where he basically has his his brake levers right up in front of him so he's almost riding on the tri bars that now they look wacky they am i in favor of those maybe maybe not um because there is then a stability and a safety thing that comes into riding but in terms of gains and aerodynamic massive is there a rider that you look at when you're commentating a lot and you're just you bang your head against the wall just because they're so inefficient it's a lot of them and a lot of it, I, they are starting to get it. But let's say that some of the best guys who, who aren't, aren't around now, unfortunately, were kind of Steve Cummings, the way that he would, he would ride like a stealth bomber. Taylor Finney, he, he got it. Very efficient, aerodynamic, very efficient. Well, it's, it's like a Tony Martin. When he would go on breakaways, obviously it helped that he had an incredible engine. But if he's ridden 200 kilometers more efficiently than everyone in the peloton, that's also going to have contributed to him not, you know, 20 riders not catching one rider because he's ridden at that in that aero position the entire time, working 75% easier than the guy chasing him. And if you extrapolate, yeah, if you extrapolate that over an entire season, if your mm. if your priority of the year is World Championships or Tour of Lombardy, if you've been able to save that and ride more efficiently throughout the season on the whole, you know, not every day, not every kilometre of every race, you can do that. But if you can do that more often, then you could extend your season. You could potentially extend your career um, over the period of, of you know, of, of a long career, doing, doing things like that. Why would you not want to make it easier for yourself? And you see so many riders who just don't get it, teams that don't get it. You know, team time trials, it, it, that's, that's the, the one that really shows where you've got these riders where they're, you know, their elbows are wider than their hips and they, then they've got their hands in and they just, just doesn't work. And it's like, just look at some photos of some good riders 
it's really, really simple. It's out there. It's not a secret. Look at what, I mean, go back from the top end, Team Pursuit. Look at what the guys are doing. Look how they ride and mm. transfer that onto a, to a time trial bike on the road. It's, it's really, really not rocket science. As you say, yes, you've got to have the morphology. But that's what always surprises me. Joe mentioned Tony Martin there. Because he's, uh, he's, he's not, certainly not a pioneer, but he's known for his um, elbows tucked in, sitting on the tops, as if he's got imaginary tri-bars and then just gunning it. Um, and other than the fact he's got his mouth open, which must be incredibly un-aerodynamic, that's obviously a really fast position. And why we don't see more riders just on the front of groups riding like that. And I know there's the argument of, okay, you've got a lot less control. That's true. There, there is a safety thing. It depends on kind of wind direction and, and the road. But the, the thing is, a guy like Tony would have spent so much time on his time trial bike. Myself, I, I love being on a road bike. I love being on a track bike. But where I was at my most confident and comfy on a bike was as soon as I tucked into that position. And... I can remember I did, my last year with um, Team Endura, I wasn't riding the Tour of Britain, but I did the training camp with them, but I did it on my TT bike. Um, and we, we spent five or six days going going round, you know, doing doing a lot of the that year's route. And I was out descending the guys. I was, I mean, I would have ridden that bike in a crit if if I could have. Um, but I was confident that was that was you know what I kind of grew up doing and and I was happy to do that. Not everyone, and I granted, not everyone can be that confident in in positions um, on the bike all the time. But that's one of the reasons why you need to train it, why you need to spend more time doing it. Um, I mean, if, if I could form myself, okay, I needed to spend more time in the mountains because I couldn't climb for toffee, but could bloody descend quick mainly because i had to to make up time but but again that that was where i was you know that's where i was confident and and that was playing to me that was that was a game going down through the cars and stuff like that that was you know i lived for that whereas a lot of people would would stand back and go oh no i can't do that and then they'll go and look out for the hills it's like that that was polar opposite to to what i wanted to do which begs the question we spoke just before we came on you said you're not riding your road bike as much but when you do are you every time you get on that bike? Are you going for Wero, or do you, are you are you ever just chucking on a jersey because it looks good, or are you going that's five watts I've given away there? Uh, it's it's an interesting one. I I now I ride because I just I enjoy the riding, and yeah, if I can if I can ride in my tuck position, I will. Especially if I'm doing a corporate day for for instance, and we're on the run into the finish, then yeah, I get proper tucked in and be as aero as I can. But um, I, I did a I did an article with a mountain bike magazine that not long not that long ago, and we were talking about bikes, and I said, look, I, I ride um, a halftail around here. I'm sure there are some swanky full suspension bikes that I could go down some of the some of the trails around here. 10 15 seconds quicker don't bother me i'm not racing anymore i'm just riding my bike so if, if it takes me a little bit longer to get around my old my old routes then yeah it doesn't doesn't matter but put a number on my back and yeah i'll be all over it <laughs> so there we have it ladies and gentlemen mr rob howes it was 
a real pleasure to speak to him. I'm sure you'll agree, James. Um, we've both ordered a set of Campagnolo carbon cranked wine bottle holders. Oh yeah, because that was a truly inspired build. Yeah, that was that was quite magnificent. Uh, and I can only assume that you'll be ordering uh, in good time some carbon fiber. Uh, engagement and then subsequent wedding rings from Mr. Hells. I wonder what he uses for stones. Maybe like uh, Campagnolo cult ceramic bearings could be. Ooh. Yeah, the actual ball bearings could be inlaid into the carbon fiber for the stones. That'd be beautiful. But yeah, it's, uh, I, I, it's nice when you get a pro who is still is, is still willing to kind of come on a podcast or you know do a chat with the media and actually kind of tell it a bit more like it is and. But without just being like, I'm just going to be condemning of this thing just to kind of be sensational. It's just like, no, you've got a genuine insight about how a professional's mind would be working at the time, mm. but the things that they can't say because of sponsors. You know, when it comes yeah. down to, we just had this terrible kit, but we couldn't say anything. And what I liked is that you could ask him a, an honest question and you'd get an honest answer. Yeah. But the one honest question that you wanted to ask James and you failed to do so because you got too nervous I just thought it was impudent was about his his father wrestling odd job yeah so uh, we did touch upon his father being a wrestler um this is like a Roman Greco style wrestler I don't think a kind of WWF type wrestler um but uh in in doing that re- research into Mr Hales it transpired that he his father had wrestled Harold um uh Harold Sakata, who is odd job or was odd job in Goldfinger. Mm. Uh, the, the, famous, the bowler hat throwing the bowler hat entrance. assassin. Yeah, he's like the only the only man whose bowler hat can slice through the concrete neck of a statue in a golf club car park at <laughs> twenty meters. Uh we don't know if he beat Harold. I want that's what I wanted to find out. Harold's ring name, by the way, was Tosh Togo. Right. So maybe it was Mike more of a kind of carnival star wrestling world of sport i think big daddy giant haystack yeah so more i don't think it was quite wwe sort of high flying octane that we no, get now it wasn't. with people doing back no there's no vince mcmahon there's no undertaker like smashing cane yeah. through a cage yeah <laughs> unfortunately but yeah i mean yeah he had a good long career um he was 100 kilos five foot ten so he's a big lad uh yeah Died early, as often these sorts of um, giants of odd job. This was yeah, yeah, sixty-two years old. He died, so we don't know if uh, Hales Senior beat odd job, but we're going to say he would have done because Rob Hales is a bit of a hitter. So I'm sure his dad was too. But yeah, um, cool guy. I mean, it got us thinking uh, if there was one pro cyclist to have had a successful career in wrestling. Yeah, what type of wrestling? In entertainment wrestling, like. WWE, not like actual Greco-Roman yep. style wrestling, who who it would be. And you had a thought on this, James, and yours was... Well, it always springs to mind anything to do with fighting and cycling, Bernardino, just because of that picture where he's just lamping some... Uh, is it lamping? Journal. Yeah. Wasn't it a farmer? Yeah, when the farmers were striking um, and mm. blocked up the road in the tour. <laughs> he was just like, yeah. no, <laughs> we are coming through. So yeah, he know I'm back. See, for me, the closest thing that we got to wrestling, to that sort of entertainment style, The Rock, Stone Cold Steve Austin, was I could easily see Mario Cipollini walking out. Yeah. Dressed as a lion. With yeah. like a huge mane coming yeah. out to fight like Kurt Angle or The Undertaker. Yeah, basically like some horrendously um, appropriated other cultures attire that's like <laughs> ent- just entirely wrong for this yeah. this day and age. 
coming in for a lot of flack and maybe maybe uh, fighting a far more down to earth Ian Stannard. Yeah, yeah, he, Ian Stannard would definitely be the Cipollini would be the hill as to use appropriate terminology. He would be which the, is hill, the yeah. bad guy. Yeah, and Stannard would be the the sort of the hero figure, who was the sort of acceptable, hardworking wrestler who wins the title after years of being sort of upstaged by Cipollini. Yeah, just the, the just the quiet, quiet hard man. A bit of a yeah, kind of like Anthony Joshua. You just got to rate his hard work that took him to a, a dizzying heights of being able to ride an entire Paris Roubaix on a flat and also smash Cipollini uh, in the face with his own lines, mate. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's something that I think we could probably make happen. Yeah, I mean, what if what if that? You know, when people ask that question, so uh, what would you do once you finish cycling? Any thoughts on your retirement? And the answer is like, I don't know, I'm 21 and you're talking about when I'm 35, I don't have a clue. How about if we had a scheme for retired cyclists that put them to work wrestling just to keep them honest, keep them paid? Because yeah. a lot of sad cycling stories, people, so across lots of sports too, but people leave cycling and they deal with all kinds of money issues, mental health issues, um, health, standard health issues. It's not... It's not an easy thing being uh, at the top top of a sport and then kind of just being left left out in the cold yeah. one day the door shuts it's like huh I don't even have any GCSEs but now they can be professional entertainment wrestlers it'll give them something yeah. to train towards something to sort of you know there's a lot of pageantry involved with sort of wrestling as there is in cycling as well a lot of panache a lot of style associated with both and actually I've been reading um you just reminded me, I've been reading Wiggins's book, uh, Icons, yes. that came out a couple of years ago, and he makes several um, parallels between cycling being just like entertainment wrestling, because he says that cycling is basically a fix, mm. because the strongest riders don't win. They preordain who should win within a team to start with, and then the organisers of the race, so he cites... Um, uh, what's his name? I can't remember his first name. But Bunyo, the uh, Gianni Italian. Bunyo, yeah, yeah. Um, he was a favourite of the Italian Tafosi, and the Giro organisers like, we've got to get this guy to win. Like this mm. is ter- this is bad news if he doesn't. And so they engineered a course that eventually he could win. So effectively, it's a fix because it just appeals to the crowd. I mean, reverse that about a year or two when the you know it's not such a secret that. Laurent Fignon was basically cheated out of winning the Giro d'Italia because the Italians were so desperate for Francesco Moser to win the yeah. race to the point where they even flew a helicopter to create a headwind <laughs> in the time trial for Laurent Fignon. But goodness, didn't his ponytail look delightful in that breeze? And I mean, look at Laurent Fignon. Like You could see Laurent Fignon in a WWE oh, yeah. wrestling match with the ponytail. The professor, he's got the he's got the nickname. That's the other thing, they all have nicknames. And he'd be fighting the badger, and the badger would come out with like a badger he- he- like headpiece on. Yes. And he would be like a bit of a sort of Walt Disney sort of from the from the sort of forests man. Yeah, I think Hino would have, no, yeah, he'd have like, I think he'd actually have kind of like badger style um, war paint. Oh, yes. Then yes. you have like the, Ultimate Warrior. Yeah, yeah. And you have like a, Sorry to get really geeky with wrestling here. I'm showing some colours. Yeah, then you have Bahamontes would come in, the eagle from Toledo. Yes. He'd fly down on a scaffold. Who else? And obviously Eddie Merckx would be winning because he's the cannibal. So he just trounces in at the end, a bit like Undertaker would. Yeah, he would be more of like one of the... I'd see Merckx as a brawler. Like one of them people that just come in and just like Stone Cold Steve Austin just beat everyone up. Yeah. 
and I feel like you've even got a hierarchy in charge, like, you know, WWF or the WWE, whatever they are these days, um, that's like, in its own way, it's a business. It's a genuine business. Oh, it it's, is. It's multi, multi-million, almost billion pound enterprise. For people that are new to us talking about entertainment wrestling on this show, uh, it's run by um, uh, Vince McMahon. And oh, Vince, Vince McMahon is a genuine person who is the genuine CEO. He is the mm. Christian Prudhomme of... Um, of entertainment wrestling but he's also a character and he's also a character but that's another parallel because i feel that the christian prudhomme's the um david lepartians the brian cookson's marrow venues they, yeah, they, they, they've always cast Henri de grange the first man you know responsible for the circus that is professional grand tour cycling he became his own character in his own play that he decided would play out in a certain like he got to write he got to write his yeah. own bit part he was a successful cyclist. He held the hour record. Vince McMahon is a hench. A successful wrestler. He was once the WWF heavyweight yeah. champion of the world. Yeah. His, his son, Shane McMahon, Shane O'Mac, was his wrestling name. Also <laughs> fought. His daughter, Stephanie McMahon, also was in the ring and was an on-screen talent who then married Triple H, who was a wrestler, who's now in a corporate position. Triple H was part of D-Generation X. Yeah. who is my one of my all-time favourite sort of stables from WWE. And if you're listening, you are listening to the Cyclist <laughs> Magazine podcast about cycling, not about entertainment wrestling. But <laughs> yeah, and Triple H genuinely got a job working for Vince McMahon, his father-in-law. Exactly. Who is also, Triple H, coincidentally, is a massive West Ham fan. Really? Yeah. There's a little tippet for you there, listener. Pat McQuaid, Andy McQuaid, Pat McQuaid, UCI, uh, ex-chief of UCI, uh, uh, Andy McQuaid's top 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 agent. Yeah, his son, t- son or brother. Uh, son. And then there's yeah. there's isn't there Jim McQuaid who was a team team manager. Oh, it the, the parallels are uncanny. It writes itself. We have forgotten one, um, you know, champion amongst champions. Probably Sean Kelly is mm. going to be cracking some heads. Yeah. And Sean Yates. They could just be the Shawns. They could be the Sean identity. Yeah, they'd be like a really good like the Road Warriors tag team. You need to give me something for that. I just came up with that. The Sean identity. Come on. The Sean Sean ultimatum. That's perfect. This is is better than I ever expected. Yeah, this is probably the best podcasting we've done so far. I need to make some phone calls to make this (laughs) all happen. Go back to Rob Howes and be like, mate, would you like to kick this off with your experience in wrestling? Can we start? The, psych, the the UCI wrestling league. And we can get Carlton Kirby to commentate it. I think he'd be a really good... Oh, he'd be like... He'd be um, good Jim Ross slash John the King Lawler. Yeah, Jer- yeah Jerry the King Lawler. One, <laughs> hell- King Lawler. one hellacious slubbernucker. Because <laughs> Jerry the King Lawler also made up words. Slubbernucker is not yeah. a word, but and it does... Kirby, Kirby makes up words and phrases like it's going out of fashion. <laughs> yeah. This is this is all too... This, this is too good. This is... We need to. Right. We need we should to just probably drop in right now. Trademarked, <laughs> yeah. patent yeah, yeah. pending. <laughs> we own the IP on this. Perfect. Um, look, we could talk about honestly the parallels between professional. We haven't even got onto the parallels in terms of performance enhancement between the two <laughs> things. So I'm going to stop before we get in. And also, we, we d- and the garish colours of the jerseys. Exactly. I'm not going to dig down that rabbit hole. So no, I've got one question though before you go. Go on. Do you know why flamingos pink? Um. Is it something to do with reflection? No, it's because they eat shrimp. Yes. 
Interesting. Yes. <laughs> and on that note, yes, interesting. Let's let's bring uh, an end to that episode because yeah. we could be here for hours. And we um, shall be after this is finished. Yeah, we'll talk 100%. ourselves. <laughs> um, we hope you enjoyed this episode with uh, Rob Howes. If you did, leave a comment, review um, on Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and share with your cycling friends as well. But uh, until other such time, uh, we will see you again in two weeks where we have the great Mr. Greg LeMond on the show. Da, da, da.